How many of you have ever heard the phrase, the writing is on the wall? Yeah. Um, usually means something unwelcome or unpleasant is coming your way. Um, that phrase actually finds its origin, that idiom finds its origin in the text that we're going to look at today. So if you have a Bible or a mobile device, turn it on or turn it to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel's in the Old Testament. Um, so if you're about halfway through the Bible, go left and um, you'll find Daniel. Um, but uh, we're 539 B.C., at this point. Um, Daniel has been in Babylon for about 70 years. It's been 70 years since he and his um, friends have been uh, taken to Babylon in chains. Um, Daniel's an old man in Daniel 5. He's 80 years plus. He's no longer a young stud. Um, he, he's, 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 he's older. He's advanced in age. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is dead, has been for about 23 years. And his spoiled, rotten, just bratty grandson, Belshazzar, is on the throne. And Belshazzar is throwing a party. Uh, the kids call them keggers these days. And uh, we know that because in verse 1 of Daniel 5, the, word, the, the Aramaic word for wine means lots of wine. And as they're living it up in this party, a mysterious hand shows up and starts to write three words on the wall, the writing on the wall. And at that point, this is a little bit of an understatement, the party is over, right? Just imagine if that happened here right now. If, if a, a severed floating hand started writing words on the wall, I'm done preaching. <laughs> like, I'm done. We're, we're, it's over. And that's what happens, Babylonian wise men are summoned, but none of them can tell the king what the words mean. Uh, your translation might say the queen mother, Nebuchadnezzar's widow, Belshazzar's grandma, um, hears what's going on, comes in and says, there is a man in your kingdom who can help you decipher what this means tells them about Daniel. And evidently, Daniel had retired from public service or been put out to pasture. We don't really know. But they send for him. He comes in, looks at the words. There's, there, he's, he's got a little bit of trepidation going on, but he interprets the words for Belshazzar. Many, which means numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, which means weighed or, or balanced. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And Perez, or, or your translation might say parson. It means um, divided. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. This is the message for Belshazzar. And what we don't know from Daniel 5, we know from world history that very night, less than 50 miles from the walls of Babylon, a combined army of Medes and Persians had joined to attack Babylon. And that very night, they attack Babylon, they plunder the city, and Belshazzar and his entire family is killed. From a world history perspective, Daniel 5 is the beginning of the end of the prideful, rebellious, unjust Babylonian empire. From a biblical perspective, Daniel 5 is the beginning of God holding up his end of the promise to, to, to take Israel, to take his people back to the promised land. From a personal perspective, it gives us a picture of how God deals with prideful, rebellious people at all times and all places. 
And so we're going we're gonna to look at this story through two different lenses. One lens is through, um, what, what does this mean for Babylon? What does this mean for Belshazzar? But the second lens we're going to look at is, what does it mean for us? What did it mean to Babylon and Belshazzar? What does it mean for us? And we're going to look at this story through four scenes or four movements. I'll give them to you up front in case you already leave or fall asleep. Here we go. Partying in the face of death. That's the first scene. The second scene is the failure of our wise men. The third is the writing on the wall for all of us. And the fourth is how God's finger has appeared to us. So that's where we're going to go, okay? Before we jump into those four things, just a little tidbit of history for all of you history geeks like me, okay? For years and years, in all religion 101 colleges and and university classes, Daniel 5 was used to show how inaccurate the biblical text is. Because every historian knew the last king of Babylon was a guy named Nabonidus, not Belshazzar. In fact, there's no record in history of anybody named Belshazzar who ruled in Babylon. And then, not too long ago, actually, archaeologists dug up an an inscription in the Iraqi desert close to where Babylon would have been, and guess what they found? Evidence that Nabonidus had actually moved into the desert and left his son, Belshazzar, in charge as acting king. This is why in the story, Belshazzar can only offer Daniel the third highest in the kingdom because his dad was still alive, who would have been the first. He would be the second, and Daniel could only be the third. And so I tell you that not um, because we want to disrespect historians or to sow doubt in your minds about their motives, It's simply to say, when somebody tells you history proves the Bible wrong, give it time. History eventually catches up with Scripture, right? So here we go. Scene one, partying in the face of death. Um, What's unusual about this party or what's unusual about the fact that this party is even happening is that Belshazzar knew this army was knocking on his door. Everybody in Babylon knew. Uh, this, this wasn't the first time that Babylon had ever been um, ransacked or uh, attacked, but this was different. This combined army was huge, and they were better organized than most armies that had attacked Babylon before. So why in the world is he partying with an army knocking on his door? The answer is, I don't know. We don't know. We just, we just don't know. Maybe he's trying to put on a brave face, um, Maybe he's trying to impress his people. Maybe he's trying to distract his people. Maybe he's trying to drown his own fears and amusement and alcohol. Maybe he's just arrogant enough to think that Babylon would never fall. But either way, either way, some of you, you're old enough to remember this, but those of you um, who, who are, who are around, remember all the strange ways that people responded to Y2K? You remember this? Like when 1999 was closing and we were moving into 2000, all kinds of conspiracy theories, all kinds of ideas. There's this worldwide computer bug that would make all the computers crash, right? The money in our banking accounts would just evaporate. The food sources or the the power grids would fail. There'd be gas shortages. People were genuinely worried and people responded to that in all kinds of ways. Some people stockpiled. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but some people stockpiled. Some people partied. 
They took Prince at his word. We're going to party like it's 1999. <laughs> right? So for those of you who are there, those of you who are around, those of you who are alive, let's all just be honest for a second. Show of hands. How many of you were a little nervous on the night of December 31st, 1999? Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Some of you were lying through your teeth. Okay. How many of you were at a party? You remember? Some of you are like, I don't remember that long ago. I heard a great story. Great story. It was a guy who invited people over to his New Year's Eve party that night. And when the countdown got to 30, he snuck down to the basement and he could hear them upstairs. Five, four, three. And when the clock struck midnight, he killed the power to the house. <laughs> Freaked everybody out. They're freaking up upstairs. He's laughing downstairs, right? It took him a minute, but all he had to do was look outside and see, oh, our neighbors still have power, so we're good. I just thought that was brilliant. Belshazzar. He's partying like it's 539. He's partying up. Why? Why does he do this? Why do humans still do this? Why do you do this? The, the, the French philosopher Blaise Pascal said the most consistent human reaction to unpleasant thoughts about our own mortality is to distract ourselves with amusement. He actually gives an analogy. He gives a couple analogies, but one of them, um, he, he, he compares life to a stagecoach that's barreling towards a cliff. And he says, we can't get out of the stagecoach. The stagecoach doesn't stop. There's no way this is happening. And instead of thinking about, instead of processing our own deaths, we just distract ourselves with the, oh, look at the mountains. Or we have pleasant conversations with our fellow passengers. Steve Jobs, founder of Apple, right before he died, he was interviewed by 60 Minutes. And they asked him, um, have you ever believed in God? And he said, there were times in my life where I have, and there are times where I haven't. When I was diagnosed with cancer, I wanted to believe. They're just, it can't be that everything fades to black. It can't be that everything that we've learned and all this knowledge we've accumulated just somehow, somehow dies, somehow it has to live on. Interestingly, that's why he didn't like having an on-off switch on any of his products. He didn't like the idea of being able to hit a button and everything just fading to black, which is why some of you hate Apple products. <laughs> Belshazzar, he's partying in the face of death. And before we throw stones, the only difference between he and us is that he knew the day he would die. We don't. We don't know when we're going to die. But that day is coming. 100% certain. Last time I checked, human mortality rate is still hovering around 100%. <laughs> Have you thought about that day? Do you think about that day? Does the thought of that day change how you live this one? Have you thought about meeting your God? Isn't that really the only question that matters eternally? Partying in the face of death. Second scene, failure of our wise men. Repeated theme all throughout the book of Daniel is the failure of Babylon's wise men when it counted the most. Um, obviously, these wise men contributed something or the kings wouldn't keep them around. But consistently, when it really mattered, when there's an important dream or vision or decision to be made, 
they got nothing. And Daniel has to come in. Daniel shows up on the scene, uh, reveals that there's a God in heaven who can do what the wise men can't. And, and, and here's the thing. There comes a point when the wise men of every age and every culture fail. And the God of heaven has to step in and do what they cannot. So let's just, let's think about this. Who would qualify as our wise men today? Who are the wise men we look to for answers in our modern day Babylon? I'd, I'd say you have your own answers, but I'd say some people look to scientists and doctors for answers. And let me be clear, scientists and doctors are wonderful gifts from God to be revered, celebrated, trusted in their areas of authority. But I've said this before, science only can get us so far. Science can only answer so much. It's proven over and over and over to stop short of answering some of the most meaningful, eternal questions. You've heard people say things like, well, I only believe in science. Science is all I need. To which I go, really? Like, can science... Can science tell you what's right and wrong? Can science tell you your, your purpose? Is there any pill out there yet that you can take to tell you what happens after we die? Science consistently falls short of those things. As science stops looking through a microscope and starts speaking to the meaning of life, they've left their area of expertise and started to dabble in philosophy and theology. Science does a great job of giving us the what. It can't tell us the why. Only someone beyond the what can tell us the why. Only someone before this material world can tell us and provide us with meaning. So science is awesome, but it eventually fails us at some level. I, I would also put politicians in the category of modern-day wise men. I would. Those are people that, that others look to for answers over and over and over again. People look to politicians to solve humanity's biggest problems. And over and over and over again, they have proven unable. There are some better than others, but there is no political philosophy able to correct the human bent towards corruption and greed and abuse of power. It just does not exist. Let's just think about our own country right? The right talks about the importance of family, traditional values, and integrity in leadership, and then elevates Donald Trump as their champion? The left talks about caring for the poor, but then it's revealed that most of them aren't personally involved in helping the poor. Statistically, they give less to poverty relief than those on the right. And, and this, isn't, this is not to pick on the right or the left. Neither is it to say that no one on the right cares about integrity and morality and no one on the left cares about the poor. That's not the point. The point is simply our political wise men have proven over and over and over again they are unable to cure on any large scale, large scale human problems, specifically matters of the heart. Just as it was in Babylon, when it comes to ultimate questions, our wise men from Stephen Hawking to Steve Jobs to party leaders on the left and the right, they fail us. They fail us. We need a higher source, a higher power than our earthly wise men. In fact, I think this is why Daniel won't let Belshazzar pay him 
to provide the interpretation. Look at verse 17. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means, free of charge. In other words, this is not my word, Belshazzar. It's God's. You're offering me a reward as if this comes from me or belongs to me. That's not the case. I can tell you the truth, but I don't own it. It doesn't belong to me. Ladies and gentlemen, we consistently daily need to hear from God. Not consistently daily hear from our wise men. We need to daily, consistently hear from God, not from me, not, not from any of the other pastors, not from any other religious leader. We don't write the mail, we just deliver it. We need to hear from God because our wise men fail us. They will eventually fail. By the way, the wise men who show up to worship the baby Jesus are from this region. Think about this. The Babylonian empire is long gone, but the traditions, the writings of Babylonian wise men remained. And isn't it interesting that in their traditions, they somehow learned to look to heaven for salvation? That they learned ultimate answers about human purpose and destiny come from heaven, not earth. And one day, God put a star there and said, here it is. 500 years later, Babylonian wise men showed up to worship a Jewish baby. And it was through encounters with God-fearing men like Daniel that taught them the limits of their wise men. Gives me chills just thinking about it. Third scene, the writing on the wall for all of us. Um, as Daniel interprets the writing on the wall, he um, explains the nature of Belshazzar's sin. And he starts by reviewing what Pastor Jim taught about last week. God humbled his grandfather for seven years, eating grass like a cow. At the end of that period, he looked up and he acknowledged that heaven rules. So he reviews all of that. And then Daniel concludes that portion like this in verse 22. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. He knew. Everybody in Babylon knew. And they knew what happened and they knew why. Though you knew this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. He charges Belshazzar with two, two main things. Two main things that are the essence of all sin. Number one, you have not worshiped God as God. You have replaced him with images Made by your hands, you have created gods in your own image and worshiped them. They do not see or hear or understand, just like you. 
You have, you have replaced worship of God with worship of yourself. Second, he says, you took something God set apart for his purpose and used them for yours. And specifically, Daniel identifies the temple artifacts that they're partying with. The consecrated things meant for worship of the one true God are being used for a drunken orgy. And in calling him out, Daniel gives us a glimpse into the nature of all sin. Sin consists of taking what God has set apart for his purposes and using it for his own. Let's take the communion cups and take tequila shots. And you say, I'd never do that, Tim. I'd never take what God has set apart for his purpose and used it for my own purposes. Two ways I see this happening today. First, viewing the Bible as a buffet to take what you like and leave what you don't. I'm gonna digest, I'm gonna gorge myself on God's grace, his forgiveness, his love, but I'm gonna leave his holiness, his justice, and his judgment for somebody else. If you read, if you study, you show up to church to find the parts you like, ignore the parts you don't. You're misusing something God has set apart for his purposes for yourself. It's sin. Secondly, God considers the human body a sacred thing, made in his image. And when we use our bodies or somebody else's body for our own pleasure, outside of the way he designed sex to work, God considers that misusing a consecrated thing. We are taking precious somethings and using it for our own gratification. When you view pornography, you're using what God intended to be holy and sacred as an object of personal pleasure. Belshazzar, he, he, he takes this to, this to the extreme. Concubines are sex slaves. So he's now taking this precious, holy thing by force. Sexual abuse is the most damaging thing you can do to someone made in God's image. To misuse his word, to misuse our bodies or somebody else's body is to misuse a consecrated thing just like Belshazzar. The handwriting is on the wall for all of us. Many, many tekel press. Which leads me to our last scene, how God's finger has appeared to us. There is some imagery here at work that we miss if we go too fast. Um, this is not the first time that the finger of God shows up in Scripture. It actually shows up the first time in Exodus chapter 8 when the Egyptian magicians aren't able to replicate the miracles that God did through Moses. They're able to mimic the first couple but then in Exodus 8, Moses takes his staff and throws it into the dust, and the dust becomes gnats. The Egyptian magicians can't replicate that. And so they go to Pharaoh privately and say, this is the finger of God. In other words, we can't do that. And then, second place we see the finger of God is when Moses gave the Ten Commandments. In, in Exodus 31, he tells the people, 
that the Ten Commandments are literally etched in stone by the finger of God. So when you see the finger of God in Scripture, it indicates a power that only God has or a direct communication from him. A power only God has and direct communication from him, which makes Jesus' statement in Luke 11 so significant. Because Jesus does miracles. Nobody else could do. He heals the blind. He walks on water. He raises the dead. And in Luke 11, he says all of these things proved that the finger of God was at work among them. Jesus was saying, I hold the power of God in my hand and I am the direct communication from him. Jesus is the finger of God and he has appeared to this generation. You and I, spoken of in prophecy, verified through miracles, proven most of all through his resurrection. In Jesus, we are given a message just as serious as what Nebuchadnezzar was given in chapter four and Belshazzar was given in chapter five. Let me repeat a question you heard from Pastor Jim last week. Are you listening? Are you listening to the message of Jesus? Because the handwriting is on the wall for all of us. Our days are numbered. We have been found. We have been weighed and found wanting. Let me offer a conclusion for today. First, two conclusions. One conclusion is for those who you, you, you're not so sure you surrender to Jesus. You're not so sure his rule and reign in your life is, is the ultimate rule and reign in your life. And then I want to talk to those of you who you have made that decision. So first of all, to those who would say, you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not sure what you believe. Here's, here's the conclusion. Many, many. Your days are numbered. The only difference between you and Belshazzar is Belshazzar knew the day he was going to die. You don't. Your days are numbered. Tekel, you have been measured and found wanting. Again, all of us, when we're weighed on the divine scales of God's justice, we all come up short. Romans lays that out clearly. I love, I love, I'm challenged by how um, Charles Spurgeon concluded his message on Daniel 5. So I want you to hear this. He says this, I would have every man put himself into the scales of the divine law. These scales are true to a hair. One grain of sand will tip them. On one side of the scale, I put only one commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And I invite any man who flatters himself that he has no need of mercy, no need of washing in the blood of Jesus Christ, no need of any atonement to put himself into the scales and see whether he measures up to just this one command. Oh, my friends, if we did but try ourselves by the very first commandment of the law, we must acknowledge that we are guilty. But then as we begin to drop in the weight of the other commandments until the whole sacred ten are there, there is not a man under the scope of heaven who has anything less to say but must confess that he is woefully short of the mark. Weigh yourself against one command. And you'll find you don't measure up. I don't measure up. <laughs> and then put all of them in. You are woefully, hopelessly short of the mark.
you have been weighed, I have been weighed, and we have been found wanting. But the center, the guts of Jesus' message is that you'll never be good enough or righteous enough to tip the scales in your favor. (laughs) So he came to offer a substitution. He came not to urge you to be a better person or try harder. Jesus came to take your place. He lived the life you couldn't live. He died the death you deserved. And when you surrender to him, when you bend your knee to him, onto your side of the scales, God puts the righteousness of Christ. And if you are in Christ, according to the scales of God's justice, you're no longer found wanting. Nothing in all of eternity can ever tip the scales of justice against you because on your side is the eternally weighty righteousness of Christ. That's the battle that he has already won for you. Submit to him. Bend your knee. Surrender to his reign. Accept his work on your behalf. And find the freedom from sin and death that he offers. Many, many, tekel, peres. That's the conclusion for those of you who haven't surrendered to Jesus from Daniel 5. To those of you who have, Daniel wrote this for Israelites discouraged in Babylon. It's easy to get discouraged in Babylon. Because everywhere you look, (laughs) Babylonians are in charge. We see them get away with blasphemy, with injustice, with cruelty. And we wonder, like Daniel did, has God forgotten us? It's been 2,000 years. Is he really coming back? There were Israelites like Daniel who lived their entire lives in Babylon, never got to see the promised land, lived and died in enemy territory. And many were wondering, is God still in charge? Does he remember us? Will we ever get to come home? The chapter five of Daniel is a resounding yes to all of those questions. The days of wicked Babylon are numbered The good and true king will return. He will restore justice. He will take us home to the promised land to spend eternity with him. I love what Tim Keller says. He says he will make everything wrong in this world right. Our hope is in that day. Our hope is in that king. And that hope in that day provides us the strength and the grace to live in this one. To not just survive Babylon, but to shine in Babylon. To get up every single day. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, 
let it shine, let it shine. I ain't going to sing it. (laughs) But you know it. Shining in Babylon is about remembering that this isn't our home. This isn't heaven. There is a day. We know how the story ends. So let's live today in that reality. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, would you help us to look to you in whatever we do? God, would you help us? For those, um, for those of us who are discouraged as we look around and we see all the Babylonians in charge, we see all of these just unbelievably terrible things happening in us, around us, to us, whatever it looks like. Jesus, would you help us to remember that there's a day coming when the good and true king will rule and we are to live today in that reality. God, for those who, for whatever reason, maybe today's the first day they've ever heard it, but for for whatever reason they've come into this place and they know that they know that they know they have not submitted to you. Jesus, I pray that today would be a day that would change their lives forever, that they would bow their knee, that they would submit their will, that they would accept the free gift of salvation that you came to offer, the eternal weight of your righteousness. God, we thank you. We thank you for making a way for us. We thank you for giving us this gift Would you help us to live in the reality of what you have done for us and what you've promised to do for us? And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful week. We'll wrap this series up next week. Hope to see you then.